What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Section 12 of Volume 1 of The Golden Bell by James Fraser. Part 1. The Magic Art and the Evolution of Kings. Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 5. Magical Control of the Weather. Subchapter 3. The Magical Control of the Sun. Making the Sun Shine. The rule of total abstinence which Greek prudence and pity imposed on the sun god introduces us to a second class of natural phenomena which primitive man commonly supposes to be in some degree under his control and dependent on his exertions. Magical control of the sun. Attempts to help the sun at an eclipse. As magician thinks he can make rain, so he fancies he can cause the sun to shine, and can hasten or stay its going down. At an eclipse, the Ojibways used to imagine that the sun was being extinguished, so they shot fire-tipped arrows in the air, hoping thus to rekindle its expiring light. The senses of eastern Peru also shot burning arrows at the sun during an eclipse, but apparently they did not so much to relight this lamp as to drive away a savage beast with which they supposed him to be struggling. Conversely, during an eclipse of the moon, some Indians of the Orinoco used to bury lighted brands in the ground, because, said they, if the moon were to be extinguished, all fire on earth would be extinguished with her, except such as was hidden from her sight. During an eclipse of the sun, the Kamchatkans were wont to bring out the fire from their huts and pray the great luminary to shine as before. But the prayer addressed to the sun shows that this ceremony was religious rather than magical. Purely magical, on the other hand, was a ceremony observed on similar occasions by the Chilcotin Indians of northwestern Africa. Men and women tucked up their robes, as they do in travelling, and then leaning on staves, as if they were heavy laden, they continued to walk in a circle till the eclipse was over. Apparently they thought thus to support the failing steps of the sun as he trod his weary round in the sky. Similarly, in ancient Egypt the king, as represented the sun, walked solemnly round the walls of a temple, in order to ensure that the sun should perform his daily journeys round the sky without the interruption of an eclipse or other mishap. After the autumnal equinox, the ancient Egyptians held a festival called the Nativity of the Sun's Walking Stick, because as a luminary declined daily in the sky, and his light and heat diminished, he was supposed to need a staff on which to lean. Various charms to cause the sun to shine. In New Caledonia, when a wizard desires to make sunshine, he takes some plants and corals to the burial ground, and fashions them in a bundle, adding two locks of hair cut from a living child of his family, also two teeth or an entire jawbone from the skeleton of an ancestor. He then climbs a mountain whose top catches the first rays of the morning sun. Here he deposits three sorts of plants on a flat stone, places a branch of dry coral beside them, and hangs a bundle of charms over the stone. Next morning he returns to the spot and sets fire to the bundle at the moment when the sun rises from the sea. As the smoke curls up, he rubs the stone with the dry coral, invokes his ancestors, and says, Son, I do this that you may be burning hot and eat up all the clouds in the sky. The same ceremony is repeated at sunset. The New Caledonians also make a trout by means of a disc-shaped stone with a hole in it. At the moment when the sun rises, the wizard holds the stone in his hand and passes a burning brand repeatedly into the hole, while he says, I kindle the sun, in order that it may eat up the clouds and dry up a land, so that it may produce nothing. 
when the sun rises behind clouds a rare event in the bright sky of northern africa the sun clan of the Bukonans say that he is grieving their heart all work stands still and all of the food of the previous day is given to matrons or old women they may eat it and may share it with the children they are nursing but no one else may taste it the people go down to the river and wash themselves all over each man throws into the river a stone taken from his domestic earth and places it with one picked up in the bed of the river on their return to the village the chief kindles a fire in his hut and all his subjects come to get a light from it a general dance follows in these cases it seems that the lighting of the flame on earth is supposed to rekindle the salt of fire such a belief comes naturally to people who by the sun clan of the Balkans, deem themselves the veritable kinsmen of the sun when the sun is obscured by clouds the lengua indians of the grand chaco hold burning sticks towards him to encourage the luminary or rather perhaps to rekindle his seemingly expired light the banks islanders make sunshine by means of a mock sun they take a very round stone called a vatloa or sunstone wind red braid about it and stick it with owl's feathers to represent rays singing the proper spell in a low voice then they hang it on some high tree such as a banyan or a cosarina in a sacred place where the stone is laid on the ground with white rods radiating from it to imitate sunbeams sometimes the mode of making sunshine is the converse of that of making rain thus we have seen that a white or red victim is sacrificed for sunshine while a black one is sacrificed for rain some of the new caledonians drench a skeleton to make rain but burn it to make sunshine sun charms among the american indians when the mists lay thick on the sierras of peru the indian women used to rattle the silver and copper ornaments which they wore on their breasts and they blew against the fog hoping thus to disperse it and make the sun shine through another way of producing the same effect was to burn salt or scatter ashes in the air the guarayo indians also threw ashes in the air for the sake of clearing up the clouded evening sky in Nicobar, when it has rained for several days without stopping the natives roll long bamboos and leaves of various kinds and set them up in the middle of the village they call these bamboos rods inviting the sun to shine the offering made by the brahman in the morning is supposed to produce the sun and we are told that assuredly it would not rise were he not to make that offering human sacrifice offered to the sun by the mexicans the ancient mexicans conceived the sun as a source of all vital force and say named him ipal nemohuay he by whom men live but if he bestowed life on the world he needed also to receive life from it and as the heart of the sun and symbol of life bleeding hearts of men and animals were presented to the sun to maintain him in vigour and enable him to run his course across the sky thus the mexican sacrifices to the sun were magical rather than religious being designed not so much to please him propitiate him as physically to renew his energies of heat light and motion the constant demand for human victims to feed the soul of fire was met by waging war every year on the neighbouring tribes and bringing back troops of captives to be sacrificed on the altar thus the ceaseless wars the mexicans and their cruel systems of human sacrifices the most monstrous on record sprang in great measure from a mistaken theory of the solar system no more striking illustration could be given of the disastrous consequences that may flow in practice from a purely speculative error greek sacrifice of horses to the sun the ancient greeks believed that the sun drove in a chariot across the sky hence the rhodians who worshipped the sun as their chief deity annually dedicated a chariot and four horses to him and flung them into the sea for his use doubtless they thought 
but after a year's work his old horses and chariot would be worn out. From a like motive, probably, the idolatrous king of Judah dedicated chariots for horses to the sun, and the Spartans, Persians, and Massagete sacrificed horses to him. The Spartans performed the sacrifice on the top of Mount Taygetus, the beautiful range behind which they saw the great luminary set every night. It was as natural for the inhabitants of the valley of Sparta to do this as it was for their islanders of Rose to throw the chariot and horses into the sea, into which the sun seemed to them to sink at evening. For thus, whether on the mountain or in the sea, the fresh horses stood ready for the weary god, where they would be most welcome at the end of his day's journey. Staying the sun by means of a net or string as some people think they can light up the sun or speed him on his way so others fancy they can retard or stop him in a past the peruvian andes stand two ruined towers and opposite hills iron hooks are clamped into their walls for the purpose of stretching a net from one tower to the other the net is intended to catch the sun on a small hill in fiji grew a patch of reeds and travellers who feared to be belated used to tie the tops of a handful of reeds together to prevent the sun from coming down as to this my late friend the reverend lorimer fearson wrote to me i have often seen the reeds tied together to keep the sun from going down the place is on a hill in la comba one of the eastern islands of the fijian group it is on the side not on the top of the hill the reeds grow to the right side of the path i asked an old man the meaning of the practice and he said we used to think the sun would see us and know we wanted him not to go down till we got past on our way home again but perhaps the original intention was to entangle the sun in the reeds just as the peruvians try to catch him in the net stories of men who have caught the sun in a noose are widely spread when the sun is going southward in the autumn and sinking lower and lower in the arctic sky the eskimos of oikluklik play the game of cat's cradle in order to catch him in the meshes of the string and so prevent his disappearance on the contrary when the sun is moving northward in the spring they play the game of cub and ball to hasten his return means like those which the eskimos take to stop the departing sun are adopted by the ewe negroes of the slave coast to catch a runaway slave they take two sticks unite them by a string and then wind the string round one of them at the same time they pronounce the name of the fugitive when the string is quite wound about the stick the runaway will be bound fast and able to stir in new guinea when a motu man is hunting or travelling late in the afternoon and fears to be overtaken by darkness he will sometimes take a piece of twine loop it and look through the loop of the sun then he pulls the loop into a knot and says wait until we get home and we will give you the fat of a pig after that he passes the string to the man behind him and then it is thrown away in a similar case and more tormutu a man of new guinea says son do not be in a hurry just wait until i get to the end and the son waits the motomutu do not like to eat in the dark so if the food is not yet ready and the sun is sinking they say son stop my food is not ready and i want to eat by you either looking at the sinking sun through a loop and then drawing the loop into a knot appears to be a purely magical ceremony designed to catch the sun in the mesh but the request that the luminary would kindly stand still till home is reached or the dinner cooked coupled with the offer of a slice of fat bacon as an inducement to him to comply with the request is thoroughly religious jerome of prague travelling among the heathen lithuanians early in the fifteenth century found a tribe who worshipped the sun and venerated a large iron hammer the priest told him that once the sun had been invisible for several months because a powerful king had shut it up in a strong tower by the signs of the zodiac had broken over the tower with this very hammer and released the sun therefore they adored the hammer staying the sun by putting a stone or a clod in the fork of a tree 
when the australian blackfellow wishes to stay the sun from going down till he gets home he puts a sod in the fork of a tree exactly facing the setting sun for the same purpose an indian of yucatan journeying westward places a stone in a tree or pulls out some of his eyelashes and blows them towards the sun when the golos a tribe of the bar el ghazal are on the march they will sometimes take a stone or a, a small ant heap about the size of man's head and place it in the fork of a tree in order to retard the sunset south african natives in travelling will put a stone in a fork of a tree or place some grass on the path with a stone over it believing that this will cause their friends to keep the meal waiting till their arrival in this as in previous examples the purpose apparently is to retard the sun but why should the act of putting a stone or a salt in a tree be supposed to effect this a partial explanation is suggested by another australian custom in their journeys the natives are accustomed to place stones in trees at various heights from the ground or to indicate the height of the sun in the sky at the moment when they pass the particular tree those who follow are thus made aware of the time of day when their friends in advance pass the spot possibly the natives thus accustomed to mark the sun's progress may have slipped into the confusion of imagining that to mark the sun's progress was to rest it at the point marked on the other hand to make it go down faster the australians throw sand in the air and blow with their mouths towards the sun perhaps to waft the lingering oil westward and bury it under the sands into which it appears to sink at night accelerating the moon as some people imagine they can hasten the sun so others fancy they can jog the tidy moon the natives of german new guinea reckon months by the moon and some of them have been known to throw stones and spears at the moon in order to accelerate its progress and so to hasten the return of their friends who are away from home for twelve months working on a tobacco plantation the Malays think that a bright glow at sunset may throw a weak person into a fever hence they attempt to extinguish the glow by spitting up water and throwing ashes at it the shuswap indians of british columbia believe that they can bring on cold weather by burning the wood of a tree that has been struck by lightning the belief may be based on the observation that in their country cold follows a thunderstorm hence in spring when these indians are travelling over the snow on high ground they burn splinters of such wood in the fire in order that the crust of the snow may not melt Subchapter 4. The Magical Control of the Wind Making the Wind to Blow or Be Still Once more the savage thinks he can make the wind to blow or to be still. When the day is hot at a yakut has a long way to go, he takes a stone which he has chanced to find in an animal or fish, winds a horsehair several times round it, and ties it to a stick. Then he waves the stick about, uttering a spell. Soon a cool breeze begins to blow. In order to procure a cool wind for nine days, the stone should first be dipped in the blood of a bird or beast, and then presented to the sun, while the sorcerer makes three turns contrary to the course of the luminary. The wind clan of the Omahas flap their blankets to start a breeze which will drive away the mosquitoes. When a Haida Indian wishes to obtain a fair wind, he fasts, shoots a raven, singes it in the fire, and then goes to the edges of the sea, sweeps it over the surface of the water four times in the direction in which he wishes the wind to blow. He then throws the raven behind him, but afterwards picks it up and sets it in a sitting posture at the foot of a spruce tree, facing towards the required wind. Propping its beak open with a stick, he requests a fair wind for a certain number of days. Then going away, he lies covered up in his mantle, till another Indian asks for how many days he has desired the wind. Which question he answers. When a sorcerer near Britain wishes to make a wind blow in a certain direction, he throws burnt lime in the air, chanting a song all the time. Then he waves sprigs of ginger and other plants about, throwing them up and catches them. Next he makes a small fire with the sprigs on the spot where the lime has formed thickest, and walks round the fires chanting. 
Lastly, he takes the ashes and throws them on the water. If Hottentot desires the wind to drop, he takes one of his fattest skins and hangs it on the end of a pole, in the belief that by lowering the skin down the wind will lose all its force and must itself fall. Fugian wizards throw shells against the wind to make it drop. On the other hand, when a Persian peasant desires a strong wind to winnow his corn, he rubs a kind of bastard saffron and throws it up into the air. After that, the breeze soon begins the blow. Some of the Indians in Canada believe that the winds were caused by a fish like a lizard. When one of these fish had been caught, the Indians advised the Jesuit missionaries to put it back into the river as fast as possible in order to calm the wind, which was contrary. If a Cherokee wizard desires to turn aside an approaching storm, he faces it and recites a spell with outstretched hand. Then he gently blows towards the quarter to which he wishes it to go, waving his hand in the same direction as if he were pushing away the storm. The Ottawa Indians fancied they could calm a tempest by relating the dreams they had dreamed during their fast, or by throwing tobacco on the troubled water. When the Cay Islanders wished to obtain a favourable wind for their friends at sea, they dance in a ring, both men and women swaying their bodies to and fro while the men hold handkerchiefs in their hands. In Melanesia, there are are everywhere weather doctors who can control the powers of the air and are willing to supply wind or calm in return for a proper remuneration. For instance, in Santa Cruz, the wizard makes wind by waving the branch of a tree and chanting the appropriate charm. In another Melanesian island, a missionary observed a large shell filled with earth, in which an oblong stone covered with red ochre was set up while the hole was surrounded by a fence of sticks strengthened by a creeper which was twined in and out the uprights. On asking a native what these things meant, he learned that the wind was here fenced or bound round, lest it should blow hard. The imprisoned wind should not be able to blow again to the fence that kept it in should have rotted away. In South Africa, when the Kaffirs wish to stop a high wind, they call in a wind doctor who takes a pot with a spout and points the spout towards the quarter from which the wind is blowing. He then places medicines and some of the dust blown by the wind in the vessel and seals up every opening of the pot with damp clay. Thereupon the doctor declares, the head of the wind is now in my pot, and the wind will cease to blow. The natives of the island of Bibili, of German New Guinea, are reputed to make wind by blowing with their mouths. In stormy weather, the Bogadjim people say, the Bibili folk are at it again, blowing away. Another way of making wind, which is practiced in New Guinea, is to strike the windstone lightly with a stick. To strike it hard would bring on a hurricane. So in Scotland, which is used to raise the wind by dipping a rag in water and beating it thrice on a stone, saying, I knock this rag upon this stone, to raise the wind in the devilist name. It shall not lie till I please again. Raising the Wind At Victoria, the capital of Vancouver's island, there are a number of large stones not far from what is called the battery. Each of them represents a certain wind. When an Indian wants any particular wind, he goes and moves the corresponding stone a little. Were he to move it too much, the wind would blow very hard. The natives of Murray Island and Torres Straits used to make a great wind blow from the south of east by pointing coconut leaves and other plants at two gigantic boulders on the shore. So long as the leaves remained there, the wind sat in the quarter. But significantly enough, the ceremony was only performed during the prevalence of the southeast monsoon. The natives knew better than to try to raise a southeast wind while the northwest monsoon was blowing. On the altar of Flatter's Chapel in the island of Flatterhuan, one of the Hebrides, lay a round bluish stone which was always moist. Wind-bound fishermen 
walked sunwise round the chapel and then poured water on the stone whereupon a favourable breeze was sure to spring up in Geiger, an island off the western coast of Argyllshire, there is a well-named Tilbury Rath, Bethag, or the Lucky Well of Bethag, which used to be famous for its power of raising the wind. It lies at the foot of a hill facing northeast, near an isthmus called Tarbat. Six feet above, where the water gushes out, there is a heap of stones which forms a cover to the sacred spring. When a person wished for a fair wind either to leave the island or to bring home his absent friends. This part was opened with great solemnity. The stones were carefully removed and the well cleaned with a wooden dish or a clam shell. This being done, the water was thrown several times in the direction from which the wished-for wind was to blow, and this action was accompanied by a certain form of words which the person repeated every time he threw the water. When the ceremony was over, the well was again carefully shut up to prevent fatal consequences. It had been firmly believed that if the place left open, a storm would arise which would overwhelm the whole island. The Estonians have various odd ways of raising a wind. They scratch their fingers or hang up a serpent or strike an axe into a house beam in the direction from which they wish the wind to blow. While at the same time they whistle. The notion is that the gentle wind will not let an innocent beam or even a beam suffer without coming and breathing softly to a sword pain. Winds Raised by Wizards and Witches In my bog, an island between New Guinea and Australia, there were men whose business was to make wind for such as wanted it. When engaged in his professional duties, the wizard painted himself black behind and red on his face and chest. The red in front typified the red cloud of morning, the black represented the dark blue sky of night. Thus arrayed, he took some bushes, and when the tide was low, fastened them at the edge of the reef, so that the flowing tide made them sway backwards and forwards. But if only a gentle breeze was needed, he fastened nearer to the shore. To stop the wind, he again painted himself red and black, the latter in imitation of the clear blue sky, and then, removing the bushes from the reef, he dried and burnt them. The smoke, as it curled up, was believed to stop the wind. Smoke, he'd go up, and him clear up on top. In some islands of Torres Straits, the wizard made wind by whirling a bull roar. The booming sound of the instrument probably seemed to him like the roar or the whistling of the wind. Amongst the Kurnai tribe of Gippsland and Victoria, there used to be a noted raiser of storms who went by the name of Bunchil Krora, or Great West Wind. This wind makes the tall centre trees of the Gippsland forest to rock and sway so that the natives could not climb them in search of opossums. Hence the people were forced to propitiate Bunchil Krora by liberal offerings of weapons and rugs whenever the treetops bent before a gale. Having received their gifts, Bunjil Kora would bind his head with swaves of stringy bark and lull the storm to rest with a song which consisted of the words Where string west wind, repeated again and again. Apparently the wizard identified himself with the wind and fancied that he could bind it by tying string round his own head. The Kwakutl Indians of British Columbia, as we have seen, believe that twins can summon any wind by merely moving their hands. In Greenland, a woman in childbed and for some time after delivery is supposed to possess the power of laying a storm. She has only to go out of doors, fill her mouth with air, and coming back into the house, blow it out again. In antiquity there was a family at Corinth, which enjoyed the reputation of being able to still the raging wind, but we do not know in what manner its members exercise useful function, which probably earned for them a more solid recompense winds than mere repute among the seafaring population of the Innsmouths. 
even in christian times under the reign of constantine a certain sopater suffered death at constantinople on a charge of binding the wings by magic because it happened that the corn ships of egypt and syria were detained afar off by calms or headwinds at the rage and disappointment of the hungry byzantine rabble an ancient charm to keep storms from damaging the crops was to bury a toad in a new earthen vessel in the middle of the field finnish wizards used to sell wind to storm-stayed mariners the wind was enclosed in three knots if they undid the first knot a moderate wind sprang up if the second it blew half a gale if the third a hurricane indeed the estonians whose country is divided from finland only by an arm of the sea still believe in the magical powers of their northern neighbours the bitter winds that blow in spring from the north and northeast bringing aug and rheumatic inflammations in their train are set down by the simple estonian peasantry to the machinations of the finnish wizards and witches in particular they regard with special dread three days in spring to which they give the name of days of the cross one of them falls on the eve of ascension day the people in the neighbourhood of felin fear to go out on these days lest the cruel winds from lapland should smite them dead a popular estonian song runs wind of the cross rushing and mighty heavy blow of thy wings sweeping past wild wailing wind of misfortune and sorrow wizards of finland ride by on the blast it is said too that sailors bedding up against the wind in the gulf of finland sometimes see a strange sail have in sight astern and overhaul them hand over hand on she comes with a cloud of canvas all her studding sails out right in the teeth of the wind forging away through the foaming billows dashing back the spray and sheaves from her cutwater every sail swollen to bursting every rope strained to cracking then the sailors know that she hails from finland enclosing the winds in knots bags and pots the art of tying up the wind in three knots so that the more knots are loosed the stronger will blow the wind has been attributed to wizards in lapland and to witches in shetland lewis and the isle of man shetland seamen still buy winds in the shape of knotted handkerchiefs or threads from old women who claim to rule the storms there are said to be ancient crones in lerwick now who live by selling wind in the early part of the nineteenth century sir walter scott visited one of these witches at stormness in the orkneys he says we clomb by steep and dirty lanes an eminence rising above the town and commanding a fine view an old hag lives in a wretched cabin on this height and subsists by selling winds each captain of a merchantman between jest and earnest gives the old woman sixpence and she boils her kettle to procure a favourable gale she was a miserable figure upwards of ninety she told us and dried up like a mummy a sort of clay-coloured cloak folded over her head corresponded in colour to her corpse-like complexion fine light blue eyes and nose and chin then almost met and a ghastly expression of cunning gave her quite the effect of a kate a norwegian witch has boasted of sinking a ship by opening a bag in which she had shut up a wind ulysses received the winds in a leather bag from aeolus king of the winds the motamutu in new guinea think that storms are sent by an obo sorcerer for each wind he has a bamboo which he opens at pleasure on the top of mount agu in togo a district of german west africa resides a fetish called bagba who is supposed to control the wind and the rain his priest is said to keep the wind shut up in great pots frightening driving away and killing the spirit of the winds often the stormy wind is regarded as an evil being who may be intimidated driven away or killed when the darkening in the sky indicates the approach of a tornado a south african magician will repair to a height 
whither he collects as many people as can be hastily summoned to his assistance directed by him they shout and bellow in imitation of the gust as it swirls roaring about the huts and among the trees of the forest then at a signal they mimic the crash of the thunder out of which there is a dead silence for a few seconds then follows a screech more piercing and prolonged than any that preceded dying away in a tumultuous wail the magician fills his mouth with a foul liquid which he squirts in defiant jets against the approaching storm as a kind of menace or challenge to the spirit of the wind and the shouting and wailing of his assistants is meant to frighten the spirit away the performance lasts until the tornado either bursts or passes away in another direction if it bursts the reason is that the magician who sent the storm was more powerful than he who endeavoured to avert it when storms and bad weather have lasted long and food is scarce with the central eskimos they endeavour to conjure the tempest by making a long whip of seaweed armed with which they go down to the beach and strike out in the direction of the wind crying taba it is enough once when northwesterly winds had kept the ice long on the coast and food was becoming scarce the eskimos performed a ceremony to make it calm a fire was kindled on the shore and the men gathered round it enchanted an old man then stepped up to the fire and in a coaxing voice invited the demon of the wind to come under the fire and warm himself when he was supposed to have arrived a vessel of water to which each man present had contributed was thrown on the flames by an old man and immediately a flight of arrows sped towards the spot where the fire had been they thought that the demon would not stay where he had been so badly treated to complete the effect guns were discharged in various directions and the captain of a european vessel was invited to fire on the wind with cannon on the twenty first of february eighteen eighty three a similar ceremony was performed by the eskimos at point barrow alaska with the intention of killing the spirit of the wind women drove the demon from their houses with clubs and knives with which they made passes in the air and the men gathering round a fire shot him with their rifles and crushed him under a heavy stone the moment that steam rose in a cloud from the smouldering embers on which a tub of water had just been thrown confronting the storm with swords and drums in ancient india the priest was directed to confront a storm armed to the teeth with a bludgeon a sword and a firebrand while he chanted a magical lay during a tremendous hurricane the drums of kaduma near the victoria nyanza were heard to beat all night when next morning a missionary inquired the cause he was told that the sound of the drums is a charm against storms the sea dyaks and cayennes of borneo beat gongs when a tempest is raging but the dyaks and perhaps the cayennes also do this not so much to frighten away the spirit of the storm as to appraise him of their whereabouts lest he should inadvertently knock their houses down heard at night above the howling of the storm the distant boom of the gongs has a weird effect and sometimes before the notes can be distinguished for the wind and rain they strike fear into a neighbouring village lights are extinguished the women are put in a place of safety and the men stand to their arms to resist an attack then with a lull in the wind the true nature of the gong beating is recognised and the alarm subsides attacking the whirlwind with weapons on calm summer days in the highlands of scotland eddies of wind sometimes go past whirling about dust and straws though not another breath of air is stirring the highlanders think that the fairies are in these eddies carrying away men women children or animals and they will fling their left shoe or their bonnet or a knife or earth from a molehill of the eddy to make the fairies drop their booty when a gust lifts the hay in the meadow the breton peasant throws a knife or a fork at it to prevent the devil from carrying off the hay 
Similarly, in the Estonian island of Osel, when the reapers are busy among the corn and the wind blows about the ears that have not yet been tied to sheaves, the reapers slash at it with their sickles. The custom of flinging a knife or a hat at a whirlwind observed alike by German, Slovenian, and Estonian rustics. They think that a witch or wizard is riding on the blast, and that the knife, if it hits the witch, will be reddened by her blood or disappear altogether, sticking the wound it has afflicted. Sometimes Estonian peasants run shrieking and shouting behind a whirlwind, hurling sticks and stones into the flying dust. The Lengue Indians of the Grand Chaco ascribe the rush of the whirlwind to the passage of a spirit, and they fling sticks at it to frighten it away. When the wind blows down their hearts, Paguans of South America snatch up firebrands and run against the wind, menacing it with the blazing brands, while others beat the air with their fists to frighten the storm. When the Goyukurus are threatened by a severe storm, the men go out armed, and the women and children scream their loudest to intimidate the demon. During a tempest, the inhabitants of a Bata village in Sumatra have been seen to rush from their houses armed with sword and lance. The Raja placed himself at their head, and with shouts and yells, they hooed and hacked at the invisible foe. An old woman was observed to be especially active in the defence of her house, slashing at the air right and left with a long sabre. In a violent thunderstorm, the bells sounding very near, the Cayons of Borneo have been seen to draw their swords, threatening half out of their scabbards, as if to frighten away the demons of the storm. In Australia, the huge columns of red sand that move rapidly across a desert tract are thought by the natives to be spirits passing along. Once an athletic young black ran after one of these moving columns to kill it with boomerangs. He was away two or three hours and came back very weary, saying he had killed Gucci, the demon but that Kuchi had growled at him and he must die. Of the Bedouins of Eastern Africa, it is said that no whirlwind ever sweeps across the path without being pursued by a dozen savages with drawn creases who stab into the centre of the dusty column in order to drive away the evil spirit that is believed to be riding on the blast. Fighting the Samoon In the light of these examples, a story told by Herodotus, which his modern critics have treated as a fable, is perfectly credible. He says without, however, vouching for the truth of the tale, that once in the land of the Vasili, the modern Tripoli, the wind blowing from the Sahara had dried up all the water tanks, so the people took counsel and marched in a body to make war on the south wind. But when they entered the desert, the Samoon swept down on them and buried them to a man. The story may well have been told by one who watched them disappearing in battle array with drums and cymbals beating into the red cloud of whirling sand. End of section 12. Section 13 of The Golden Bell, Volume 1. Part 1. The Magic Art of the Evolution of Kings, Volume 1. By James Fraser. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information on a volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 6. Magicians as Kings, Part 1 Social importance of magicians and their rise to the position of chiefs or kings The foregoing evidence may satisfy us that in many lands and many races magic has claimed to control the great forces of nature for the good of man. If that has been so, the practitioners of the art must necessarily be personages of importance and influence in any society which puts faith in their extravagant pretensions, and it would 
be no matter for surprise if by virtue of the reputation which they enjoy and of the awe which they inspire some of them should attain to the highest position of authority in point of fact magicians appear to have often developed into chiefs and kings but magic is not the only road by which men have travelled to a throne not that magic is the only or perhaps even the main road by which men have travelled to a throne the lust of power the desire to domineer over our fellows is among the commonest and the strongest of human passions and no doubt men of a masterful character have sought to satisfy it in many different ways and have attained by many different means to the goal of their ambition the sword for example in a strong hand has unquestionably done for many what the magician's wand in a deft hand appears to have done for some complexity of the social phenomena and the danger of simplifying them unduly by our hypothesis he who investigates the history of institutions should constantly bear in mind the extreme complexity of the causes which have built up the fabric of human society and should be on his guard against the subtle danger incidental to all science the tendency to simplify unduly the infinite variety of the phenomena by fixing our attention on a few of them to the exclusion of the rest the propensity to excessive simplification is indeed natural to the mind of man since it is only by abstraction and generalization which necessarily imply the neglect of a multitude of particulars that he can stretch his puny faculties so as to embrace a minute portion of the illuminate vastness of the universe but if the propensity is natural and even inevitable it is nevertheless fraught with peril since it is apt to narrow and falsify our conception of any subject under investigation to correct it partially for to correct it wholly would require an infinite intelligence we must endeavour to broaden our views by taking account of a wide range of facts and possibilities and when we have done so to the utmost of our power we must still remember that from the very nature of things our ideas fall immeasurably short of the reality this propensity to excessive simplification has done much to discredit the study of primitive mythology and religion in no branch of learning perhaps has this process to an attractive but fallacious simplicity wrought more havoc than in the investigation of the early history of mankind in particular the excesses to which it has been carried have done much to discredit the study of primitive mythology and religion students of these subjects have been far too ready to pounce on any theory which adequately explains some of the facts and forthwith to stretch it so as to cover them all and when the theory thus unduly strained has broken as was to be expected in their unskilful hands they have petulantly thrown it aside in disgust instead restricting it as they should have done from the outset to the particular class of facts to which it is really applicable so it fared in our youth with the solar myth theory which after being unreasonably exaggerated by its friends has long been quite as unreasonably rejected altogether by its adversaries and in more recent times the theories of totemism magic and taboo to take only a few conspicuous examples have similarly suffered from the excessive seal of injudicious advocates this instability of judgment this tendency of anthropological opinion to swing to and fro from one extreme to another with every breath of new discovery is perhaps the principal reason why the whole study is still viewed askance by men of sober and cautious temper who naturally look with suspicion on idols that are set up and worshipped one day only to be knocked down and travelled underfoot the next to these cool observers max muller and the rosy dawn of the nineteenth century stand on the same dusty shelf with jacob bryant and noah's ark in the eighteenth and they expect with a sarcastic smile the time when the fashionable anthropological topics of the present day will in their turn be consigned to the same peaceful limbo of forgotten absurdities it is not for the anthropologist himself to anticipate the verdict of posterity on his labours still it is his humble hope 
that the facts which he has patiently amassed will be found sufficiently numerous and solid to bear the weight of some at least of the conclusions which she rests upon them so that these can never again be lightly tossed aside as the fantastic dreams of a mere bookish student at the same time if he is wise he will be forward to acknowledge and proclaim that our hypothesis at best are but partial not universal solutions of the manifold problems which confront us and that in science as in daily life it is vain to look for one key to open all locks the practice of magic explains the rise of kings in some communities but not in all therefore to revert to our immediate subject in putting forward the practice of magic as an explanation of the rise of monarchy in some communities i am far from thinking or suggesting that it can explain the rise of it in all or in other words that kings are universally the descendants or successors of magicians and if any one should hereafter as it is likely enough either enunciate such a theory or attribute it to me i desire to enter my caveat against it in advance to enumerate and describe all the modes in which men have pushed or fought or wormed their way by force or by fraud by their own courage and wisdom or by their cowardice and folly of others to supreme power might furnish the theme of a political treatise such as i have no pretension to write for my present purpose it suffices if i can trace the magician's progress in some savage and barbarous tribes from the rank of a sorcerer to the dignity of a king the facts which i am about to lay before the reader seem to exhibit various steps of this development from simple conjuring up to the conjuring compound with despotism social importance of magicians among the aborigines of central australia let us begin by looking at the lowest race of men as to whom we possess comparatively full and accurate information the aborigines of australia these savages are ruled neither by chiefs nor kings so far as the tribes can be said to have a political constitution it is a democracy or rather an oligarchy of old and influential men who meet in council and decide on all measures of importance to the practical exclusion of the younger men their deliberative assembly answers to the senate of later times if we had to coin a word for such a government of elders we might call it a genontocracy the elders who in aboriginal australia thus meet and direct the affairs of their tribe appear to be for the most part the headmen of their respective totem clans now in central australia where the desert nature of their country and the almost complete isolation from foreign influences have retarded progress and preserved the natives on the whole in the most primitive state the headmen of the various totem clans are charged with the important task of performing magical ceremonies for the multiplication of the totems and as the great majority of the totems are edible animals or plants it follows that these men are commonly expected to provide the people with food by means of magic others have to make the rain to fall or to render other services to the community in short among the tribes of central australia the headmen are public magicians Further, the most important function is to take charge of the sacred storehouse usually a cleft in the rocks or a hole in the ground where are kept the holy stones and sticks charinga with which the souls of all the people both living and dead are apparently supposed to be in a manner bound up thus while the headmen have certainly to perform what we should call civil duties such as to inflict punishment for breaches of tribal custom their principal functions are sacred or magical social importance of magicians among the aborigines of southeastern australia again in the tribes of southeastern australia the headman was often sometimes invariably a magician thus in the southern warijuri tribe the headman was always a wizard or a medicine man 
There was one for each local division. He called the people together for the initiation ceremonies or to discuss matters of public importance. In the Yerkla mining tribe, the medicine men are the headmen. They are called Mobung Bai, from Mobung, magic. They decide disputes, arrange marriages, conduct the ceremonies of initiation, and in certain circumstances, settle the formalities to be observed in ordeals of battle. In fact, they wield authority in the tribe and give orders where others only make requests. Again, in the uni tribe, there was a headman for each local division, and in order to be fitted for his office, he had, among other qualifications, be a medicine man. Above all, he must be able to perform magical feats at the initiation ceremonies. The greatest headman of all was he who, on these occasions, could bring up the largest number of things out of his inside. In fact, the budding statesman and king must be first and foremost a conjurer in the most literal sense of the world. Some forty or fifty years ago, the principal headman of the Dairi tribe was a certain Jalina Piramarana, who was known among the colonists as the Frenchman on account of his polished manners. He was not only a brave and skilful warrior, but also a powerful medicine man, greatly feared by the neighbouring tribes, who sent him presents, even from a distance of a hundred miles. He boasted of being the tree of life, for he was the head of a totem consisting of a particular sort of seed, which forms at certain times the chief vegetable food of these tribes. His people spoke of him as the plant itself, Manura, which yields the edible seed. Again, an early writer on the tribes of southwestern Australia, near King George's Sound, tells us that the individuals who possess most influence are the Malagara docks or doctors. A Malagara dock is considered to possess the power of driving away wind or rain, as well as bringing down lightning or disease upon any object of their or other's hatred, and they also attempt to heal the sick. On the whole, then, it is highly significant that in the most primitive society about which we are accurately informed, it is especially the magicians or medicine men who appear to have been in process of developing into chiefs. Social Importance of Magicians in New Guinea When we pass from Australia to New Guinea, we find that, though the natives stand at a far higher level of culture than the Australian Aborigines, the constitution of society among them is still essentially democratic or oligarchic, and chieftainship exists only in embryo. Thus Sir William MacGregor tells us that in British New Guinea, no one has ever risen wise enough, bold enough, and strong enough to become the despot even of a single district. The nearest approach to this has been the very distant one of some person becoming a renowned wizard, but that has only resulted in living a certain amount of blackmail. To the same effect, a Catholic missionary observes that in New Guinea, the Nepu or sorcerers are everywhere. They boast of their misdeeds. Everybody fears them. Everybody accuses them. And after all, nothing positive is known of their secret practices. This cursed brood is, as it were, the soul of the Palpoin life. Nothing happens without the sorcerer's intervention. Wars, marriages, diseases, deaths, expeditions, fishing, hunting, always and everywhere the sorcerer. One thing is certain for them, that they do not regard it as an article of faith, but as a fact patent and indisputable, and that is the extraordinary power of the Nepu. He is a master of life and of death. Hence it is only natural that they should fear him and obey him in everything and give him all that he asks for. The Nepu is not a chief but he domineers over the chiefs, and we may say that the true authority, the only effective influence in New Guinea, is that of the Nepu. Nothing can resist him. We are told that in the Tairupi, or Montumutu tribe of British New Guinea, chiefs have not necessarily supernatural powers. 
but that a sorcerer is looked upon as a chief some years ago for example one man of the tribe was a chief because he was supposed to rule the sea calming it or rousing it to fury at his pleasure another owed his power to his skill in making the rain to fall the sun to shine and the plantations to bear fruit it is believed that the chief of moat in british new guinea can affect the growth of crops for good or ill and coax the turtle and dugon to come from all parts of the sea and allow themselves to be caught at Portal bay in british new guinea there are magicians taniwaga who are expected to manage certain departments of nature for the good of the community by means of charms bari which are known only to them one of these men for example works magic for rain another for taro another for wallaby and another for fish a magician who is believed to control an important department of nature may be the chief of his community thus the present chief of wedao is a sorcerer who can make rain and raise or calm winds he is greatly respected by all and receives many presents a chief of Colim on finch harbour in german new guinea enjoyed a great reputation as a magician it was supposed that he could make wind and storm rain and sunshine and visit his enemies with sickness and death supposed magical or supernatural powers of chiefs in melanesia turning now to the natives of the melanesian islands which stretched an immense quadrant of a circle round new guinea and australia on the east we are told by dr codrington that among these savages as a matter of fact the power of chiefs has hitherto rested upon the belief in their supernatural power derived from the spirits or ghosts with which they had intercourse as this belief has failed in the banks islands for example some time ago the position of a chief has tended to become obscure and as this belief has now been generally undermined a new kind of chief must needs arise unless a time of anarchy is to begin according to a native melanesian account the origin of the power of chiefs lies entirely in the belief that they have communication with mighty ghosts tindalo and wield that supernatural power mana whereby they can bring the influence of the ghost to bear if a chief imposed a fine it was paid because the people universally dreaded his ghostly power and firmly believed that he could inflict calamity and sickness upon such as resisted him as soon as any considerable number of his people began to disbelieve in his influence with the ghosts his power to levy fines was shaken in Malo, one of the new hebrides the highest nobility consists of those persons who have sacrificed a thousand little pigs to the souls of their ancestors no one ever resists a man of that exalted rank because in him are supposed to dwell all the souls of the ancient chiefs and all the spirits who preside over the tribe in the northern new hebrides the son does not inherit the chieftainship but he inherits if his father can manage it what gives him the chieftainship namely his father's supernatural power his charms magical songs stones and apparatus and his knowledge of the way to approach spiritual beings a chief in the island of Paramatta informed a european that he had the power of making rain wind storm thunder and lightning and dry weather he exhibited as his magical instrument a piece of bamboo with some partially coloured rags attached to it in this bamboo he said were kept the devils of rain and wind and when he commanded them to discharge their office or to lie still they were obliged to obey being his subjects and prisoners when he had given his orders to these captive devils the bamboo had to be fastened to the highest point of his house in the marshall bennett islands to the east of new guinea there was a duty of each chief of the clan to charm the gardens of his clan so as to make them productive the charm consisted of turning up part of the soil of a long stick 
and muttering an appropriate spell each special crop such as yams bananas sugarcane and coconuts had a special kind of stick and its special spell magicians as chiefs in new britain with regard to government among the melanesians of new britain or the bismarck archipelago i may cite the evidence of an experienced missionary the reverend dr george brown who settled in the islands at a time when no other white man was living in the group and who resided among the savage islanders for some five or six years he says there was no government so called in new britain except that former jurisdiction or power represented by the secret societies and that exercised by chiefs who were supposed to possess exceptional powers of sorcery and witchcraft these powers were very real owing i think principally to two reasons one of which was that the men themselves thoroughly believed that they were the possessors of the powers which they claimed and the other was that the people themselves believed that the men really possessed them there was indeed the title of chief todaru claimed and also given to them by the people but this was not the result of any election or necessarily by inheritance it was simply that a certain man claimed to be the professor of these powers and succeeded in convincing the people that he really possessed them again dr brown tells us that in new britain a ruling chief was always supposed to exercise priestly functions that is he professed to be in constant communication with the teparans spirits and through their influence he was enabled to bring rain or sunshine fair winds or foul ones sickness or health success or disaster in war and generally to procure any blessing or curse for which the applicant was willing to pay a sufficient price if his spells did not produce the desired effect he always had a plausible explanation ready which was generally accepted as a sufficient excuse i think much of the success which these men undoubtedly had was due to their keen observation of natural phenomena and to the effects of fear upon the people dr turner on the power of magical disease makers in tana according to dr turner the real gods at tana may be said to be the disease makers it is surprising how these men are dreaded now firm the belief is that they have in their hands the power of life and death there are rain makers and thunder makers and fly and mosquito makers and a host of other sacred men but the disease makers are the most dreaded it is believed that these men can create disease and death by burning what is called nahuk nahuk means rubbish but principally refuse of food everything of the kind they bury or throw into the sea lest the disease makers should get hold of it these fellows are always about and consider it their special business to pick up and burn with certain formalities anything that the nahuk line which comes in their way if a disease maker sees the skin of a banana for instance he picks it up wraps it in the leaf and wears it all day hanging round his neck the people stare as they see him go along and say to each other he has got something he will do for somebody by and by at night in the evening he scrapes some bark off a tree mixes it up with the banana skin rolls all up tightly in a leaf in the form of cigar and then puts the one end close enough to the fire to cause it to singe and smoulder and burn away very gradually presently he hears a shell blowing there he says to his friends there it is that is the man whose rubbish i am now burning he is ill let us stop burning and see what they bring in the morning when a person is taken ill he believes that it is occasioned by someone burning his rubbish instead of thinking about medicine he calls someone to blow a shell a large conch or other shell which then perforated and blown can be heard two or three miles off the meaning of it is to implore the person who is supposed to be burning the sick man's rubbish and causing all the pain to stop burning and it is a promise as well that a present will be taken in the morning the greater the pain the more they blow the shell and when the pain abates they cease 
supposing that the disease maker has been kind enough to stop burning night after night the silence is broken by the dismal two-two-tooing of these shells in the morning the friends of the sufferer repair to the disease maker with the presence of pigs mats hatchets beads whales teeth or such like things thus the sorcerer has attained to a position of immense power and influence and acquire wealth by purely maleficent magic it is not by the imaginary benefits which they confer on the community but by the imaginary evils which they inflict on individuals that they climb the steps of a throne or the ladder that leads up to heaven for according to dr turner these rascals are on the high road to divinity the process which they employ to accomplish their ends is a simple application of the principles of contagious magic whatever has once been in contact with a person remains in sympathetic connection with him always and harm done to it is therefore harm done to him side by side with the evil which this superstition produces on the one hand by inspiring men with baseless terrors and the other by leading them to neglect effectual remedies for real evils we must recognize the benefit which it incidentally confers on society by causing people to clear away and destroy the refuse of their food and other rubbish which if suffered to accumulate about their dwellings might by polluting the atmosphere prove a real not an imaginary source of disease in practice cleanliness based on motives of superstition may be just as effective for the preservation of health as if it were founded on the best ascertained principles of sanitary science evolution of chiefs of kings out of magicians especially out of rainmakers in africa still rising in the scale of culture we come to africa where both the chiefmanship and the kingship are fully developed and here the evidence for the evolution of the chief out of the magician and especially out of the rainmaker is comparatively plentiful power of the magicians among the wambergui wetapturn and wagogo of east africa thus among the wambergui a bantu people of east africa the original form of government was a family republic but the enormous power of the sorcerers transmitted by inheritance soon raised them to the rank of petty lords or chiefs of the three chiefs living in the country by eighteen ninety four two were much dreaded as magicians and the wealth of cattle they possessed came to them almost wholly in the shape of presents bestowed for their services in that capacity their principal art was that of rainmaking. the chiefs of wataturu another people of east africa are said to be nothing but sorcerers destitute of any direct political influence again among the wagogo of german east africa the main power of the chiefs we are told is derived from the art of rain-making if a chief cannot make rain himself he must procure it from someone who can among the maasai the supreme chief is always the powerful medicine man again in the powerful maasai nation of the same region the medicine men are not uncommonly the chiefs and the supreme chief of the race is almost invariably a powerful medicine man these labon as they are called are priests as well as doctors skilled in interpreting omens and dreams in averting ill luck and in making rain the head chief or medicine man who has been called the maasai pope is expected not only to make rain but to repel and destroy the enemies of the maasai in war by his magic art the following is captain murko's account of the maasai pope the most prominent clan of the whole maasai people is the en Gidun, because to it belong not only the family of the chief or oboni but also the family of the magicians the designation chief is strictly speaking not quite correct since the chief or oboni does not govern directly and exercises no real administrative function he rules only indirectly firm belief of his subjects in his prophetic gifts and his supernatural power of sorcery gives him an influence on the destinies of the people 
despotism and cruelty such as we find among all negro rulers are alien to him he is not so much a ruler as a national saint or patriarch the people speak of his sacred person with shy awe and no man dares to appear before this mighty personage without being summoned the aim of his policy is to unite and strengthen the Maasai, while he allows free play to the predatory instincts of the warriors and raids and other tribes he guides his own people from the scourge of civil war to which the ceaseless quarrels of the various districts with each other would otherwise continually give occasion this influence of his is rendered possible by the belief that victory can only be achieved through the secret power of the war medicine which none but he can compound and that defeat would infallibly follow if he were to predict it neither he nor his nearest relatives march with the army to war he supplies remedies generally in the shape of magical medicines for plagues and sicknesses and he appoints festivals of prayer in honour of the Messiah god Megai. he delivers these predictions by means of an oracular game like the telling of beads and just as samson's miraculous strength went from him when his hair was shorn so it is believed that the head chief of the Messiah would lose his supernatural powers if his chin was shaved according to one writer the Messiah pope has never more than one eye the father knocks out his son's eye in order to qualify him for the holy office among the mandai of british east africa the principal medicine man is a supreme chief among the mandai of british east africa the okoriot or principal medicine man holds precisely the same position as the maasai or oiboni that is to say he is supreme chief of the whole race he is a diviner and foretells the future by casting stones inspecting entrails interpreting dreams and prophesying when he is drunk the nandai believe implicitly in his powers he tells them when to begin planting their crops in time of drought he procures rain for them either directly or by means of the rainmakers he makes women and cattle fruitful and no war party can expect to be successful if he has not approved of the foray his office is hereditary and his person is usually regarded as absolutely sacred nobody may approach him with weapons in his hand or speak in his presence unless the great man dresses him and it is most important that nobody should touch his head else it is feared that his powers of divination and so forth would depart from him however one of these sacred pontiffs was clubbed to death being held responsible for several public calamities to wit famine sickness and defeat in war the Suk and turkana two other peoples of british east africa distinguish between their chiefs and their medicine men who wield great power but very often the medicine man is a chief by virtue of his skill in medicine or the occult arts rainmakers as chief among the tribes of the upper nile again among the tribes of the upper nile the medicine men are generally the chiefs their authority rests above all upon their supposed power of making rain for the rain is the one thing which matters to the people in those districts as if it does not come down at the right time it means untold hardships for the community it is therefore small wonder that men more cunning than their fellows should arrogate to themselves the power of producing it or that having gained such a reputation they should trade on the credulity of their simpler neighbours hence most of the chiefs of these tribes are rainmakers and enjoy popularity in proportion to their powers to give rain to their people at the proper season rain-making chiefs always build their villages on the slopes of a fairly high hill as they no doubt know that the hills attract the clouds and that they are therefore fairly safe in their weather forecasts each of these rainmakers has a number of rain stones such as rock crystal aventurine and amethyst which he keeps in a pot 
when he wishes to produce rain he plunges the stones in water and taking in his hand a peeled cane which is split at the top he beckons with it to the clouds to come or waves them away in the way they should go muttering an incantation the while or he pours water and the entrails of a sheep or goat into a hollow in a stone and sprinkles the water towards the sky though the chief acquires wealth by the exercise of his supposed magical powers he often perhaps generally comes to a violent end for in time of drought the angry people assemble and kill him believing that it is he who prevents the rain from falling yet the office is usually hereditary and passes from father to son among the tribes which cherish these beliefs and observe these customs are the latuka bari lalulba and lakoya rainmakers as chase among the latuka thus for example with regard to the latuka we are told that amongst the most important but also the most dangerous occupations of the greater chiefs is the procuring of rain for their country almost all the greater chiefs enjoy the reputation of being rainmakers and the requisite knowledge usually passes by inheritance from father to son however there are also here and there among the natives persons who without being chiefs busy themselves with rainmaking if there has been no rain in a district for a long time and the people wish to attract it for the sake of the sowing they apply it to their chief bringing him a present of sheep goats or in urgent cases cattle or a girl and if the present seems to him sufficient he promises to furnish rain but if it appears to him too little he asks for more if some days pass without rain it gives the magician opportunity for claiming fresh presents on the ground that the smallness of the offered gifts hinders the coming of the rain when the cupidity of the rainmaker is satisfied he goes to work in the usual way pouring water over two flat stones one called the male and the other female till they are covered to a depth of three inches the male stone is a common white quartz the female is brownish if still no rain falls he makes a smoky fire in the open with certain herbs and if the smoke mounts straight up rain is near although an unsuccessful rainmaker is often banished or killed his son always succeeds him in the dignity amongst the berry the procedure of the rain-making chief to draw down the water from heaven is somewhat elaborate he has many rainstones consisting of rock crystals and pink and green granite these are deposited in the hollows of some twenty slabs of gneiss and across the hollows are laid numerous iron rods of various shapes and sizes when rain is to be made these iron rods are set up in a perpendicular position and water is poured on the crystals and stones then the rainmaker takes up the stones one by one and oils them praying to his dead father to send the rain praying to his dead father to send the rain one of the iron rods is provided with a hook and another is a two-headed spear with the hook the rainmaker hooks and attracts the rain clouds with the two-headed spear he attracts and drives them away in this procedure the prayer to the dead ancestor is religious while the rest of the ceremony is magical thus as so often happens the savage seeks to compass his object by combining magic with religion the logical inconsistency does not trouble him provided he attains his end further the rainmaker chief of the barry is supposed to be able to make women fruitful for this purpose he takes an iron rod with a hollow bulb at each end in which are small stones grasping the rod by the middle he shakes it over the would-be mother rattling the stones and muttering an incantation magical powers of chiefs among the bongo and dinikas again among the bongo a tribe of the same region the influence of the chiefs is said to rest in great part on a belief in their magical powers for the belief is credited with the knowledge of certain roots which are the only means of communicating with the dangerous spirits of whose mischievous pranks the bongos stand in great fear 
in the Dingo or Dango Nation to the northeast of the Bongo, men who are supposed to be in close communication with spirits past or omnipotent. It is believed that they make rain, conjure away all calamities, foresee the future, exercise evil spirits, know all that goes on even at a distance, have the wild beasts in their service, and can call down every kind of disaster on their enemies. One of these men became the richest and most esteemed chief for the Kik tribe through his skill in ventriloquism. He kept a cage from which the roars of imaginary lions and the howls of imaginary hyenas were heard to proceed, and he gave out that these beasts guarded his house and were ready at his bidding to rush forth on his enemies. The dread which he infused into the tribe and his neighbours was incredible. From all sides oxen were sent to him as presents, so that his herds were the most numerous in the country. Another of these conjurers in the Tuik tribe had a real tame lion and four real fat snakes, which he kept in front of his door, to the great awe of the natives, who could only attribute the pacific demeanour of these ferocious animals to sorcery. But it does not appear that the real lion inspired nearly so much terror as the imaginary one, from which we may perhaps infer that among these people ventriloquism is a more solid basis of political power even than lion taming. Chiefs and Kings as Rainmakers in Central Africa In Central Africa, again, the Lindu tribe to the west of Lake Albert firmly believe that certain people possess the power of making rain. Among them, the rainmaker either is a chief or almost invariably becomes one. The Banyoro also have a great respect for the dispensers of rain, whom they lure with a profusion of gifts. The great dispenser, he who has absolute uncontrollable power over the rain, is the king, but he can depute his power to other persons so that the benefit may be distributed and the heavenly water laid on over the various parts of the kingdom. A Catholic missionary observes that a superstition common to the different peoples of equatorial Africa attributes to the petty kings of the country the exclusive power of making the rain to fall. In extreme cases, the power is ascribed to certain kings more privileged than the rest, such as those of Huila, Humbri, Fare, Laibibi, and others. These kings profit by this superstition in order to draw to themselves many presents of cattle, but the rain must fall after the sacrifice of an ox, and if it tarries, the king, who is never at a loss for excuses to extricate himself from the scrape, will ascribe the failure to the defects of the victim, and will seize the pretext to claim more cattle. Among the Bayaka, a tribe of the Kasi district in the Congo Free State, magicians are exempt from justice, and the chief is a principal magician. And among the Banyazi, another tribe of the same district, there is, or was, a few years ago, a chief who passed for the greatest magician in the country. Medicine Men as Chiefs in Western Africa In Western as well as in Eastern and Central Africa, we meet with the same union of chiefly with magical functions. Thus, in the Fan tribe, the strict distinction between chief and medicine man does not exist. The chief is also a medicine man, and a smith to boot, for the Fans esteem the smith's craft sacred, and none but chiefs may meddle with it. The chiefs of the Ossidinj district in the Cameroons have as such very little influence over their subjects, but if the chief happens to be also the fetish priest, as he generally is among the Ekois, he has not only powerful influence in all fetish matters, and most of the vile interests of the people are bound up with fetish worship, but he also enjoys great authority in general. A few years ago, the head chief of Tetin on the Cross River in southern Nigeria was an old man whom the people had compelled to take office in order that he should look after the fetishes or jujus and work magic for the benefit of the community. In accordance with the old custom, which is binding on the head chief, he was never allowed to leave his compound, that is, to ensure in which his house stands. 
he gave the following account of himself to an english official who paid him a visit i have been shut up ten years but being an old man i don't miss my freedom i am the oldest man of the town and they keep me here to look after the jujus and to conduct the rites celebrated when women are about to give birth to children and other ceremonies of the same kind by the observance and performance of these ceremonies i bring game to the hunter cause the yam crop to be good bring fish to the fishermen and make rain to fall so they bring me meat yams fish etc to make rain i drink water and squat it out and pray to our big deities if i were to go outside this compound i should fall down dead on returning to this hut my wives cut my hair and nails and take great care of the pairings chiefs as rainmakers in southern africa as to the relation between the offices of chief and rainmaker in south africa a well-informed writer observes in very old days the chief was the great rainmaker of the tribe some chiefs allowed no one else to compete with them this a successful rainmaker should be chosen as chief there was also another reason the rainmaker was sure to become a rich man if he gained a great reputation and it would manifestly never do for the chief to allow any one to be too rich the rainmaker exerts tremendous control over the people and so it would be most important to keep this function connected with royalty tradition always places the power of making rain as the fundamental glory of ancient chiefs and heroes and it seems probable that it may have been the origin of chieftainship the man who made the rain would naturally become the chief in the same way chaka the famous zulu despot used to declare that he was the only diviner in the country for if he allowed rivals his life would be insecure these south african rainmakers smear themselves with mud and sacrifice oxen as an essential part of the charm almost everything is thought to turn to the colour of the beasts thus umbandine the old king of the swazis had huge herds of cattle of a peculiar colour which was particularly well adapted for the production of rain hence deputations came to him from distant tribes praying and bribing him to make rain by the sacrifice of his cattle and he used to threaten to bind up the sky if they did not satisfy his demands the power which by these means he wielded was enormous similarly mablan a chief of the bewinda in the northeastern corner of the transvaal enjoyed a wide reputation and was revered beyond the limits of his own tribe because he was credited with the power of rain-making a greater power in the eyes of natives than that of the Asagai. hence he was constantly importuned by other chiefs to exercise his power and received valuable presents of girls oxen and red and green bees as inducements to turn on the heavenly water tap the power of rainmakers among the matabils among the matabils of south africa the witch doctors are supposed to be on speaking terms with spirits and their influence is described as tremendous in the time of king lobengula some years ago their power was as great as if not greater than the king's similarly speaking of the south african tribes in general dr moffat says that the rainmaker is in the estimation of the people no mean personage possessing an influence over the minds of the people superior even to that of the king who is likewise compelled to yield to the dictates of this artificial in matabella land the rainy season falls in november december january and february for several weeks before the rain sets in the clouds gather in heavy banks dark and lowering then the king is busy with his magicians compounding potions of wondrous strength to make the labouring clouds discharge their pent-up burden on the thirsty earth he may be seen gazing at every black cloud for his people flock from all parts to beg rain from him their rainmaker for their parched fields 
and they thank and praise him when a heavy rain has fallen. The king of the Matabels is Rainmaker. A letter dated from Bulawayo, the 12th of November, 1880, records that Lo Bangula, king of the Matabels, arrived yesterday evening at his corral of the White Rocks. He brought with him the rain to his people. For according to the ideas of the Matabels, it is a king who ought to make the rain and the good season in all senses of the word. Now Lo Bangula had chosen well the day and the hour, for it was in the midst of a tremendous storm that the king made his solemn entrance into the capital. He must now, at the arrival of the king and of the rain, gives rise every year to a little festival. For the rain is the great benefit conferred by the king, the pledge of future harvests and of plenty after eight months of desolating drought. To bring down the needed showers, the king of the Matabels oils a magic hell broth in a cauldron, which sends up volumes of stain to the blue sky. But to make assurance doubly sure, he has recourse to religion as well as to magic, for he sacrifices twelve black oxen to the spirits of his fathers, and prays to them. O great spirits of my father and grandfather, I thank you for having granted last year to my people more wheat than our enemies, the Mashonas. This year also in gratitude for the twelve black oxen which I am about to dedicate to you, make us to be the best fed and the strongest people in the world. Thus the king of the Matabels acts not only as a magician, but as a priest, for he prays and sacrifices to the spirits of his forefathers. End of section 13「Fourteen of the Golden Bough, Part One: The Magic Art and the Evolution of Kings, Volume One, by James Fraser. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter Six, Part Two. Thus, in Africa, kings have probably often been developed out of magicians and especially out of rainmakers. The foregoing evidence renders it probable that in Africa the king has often been developed out of the public magician, and especially out of the rainmaker. The unbounded fear which the magician inspires and the wealth which he amasses in the exercise of his profession may both be supposed to have contributed to his promotion. But if the career of a magician, and especially of a rainmaker, offers great rewards to the unsuccessful practitioner of the art, it is beset with many pitfalls into which the unskilled or unlucky artist may fall. The position of the public sorcerer is indeed a very precarious one, for where the people firmly believe that he has it in his power to make the rain to fall, the sun to shine, and the fruits of the earth to grow, they naturally impute drought and dearth to his culpable negligence or willful obstinacy, and they punish him accordingly. We have seen that in Africa the chief who fails to procure rain is often exiled or killed. Examples such punishments could be multiplied. Kings in Africa punish for drought and dearth. Thus in some parts of West Africa, when prayers and offerings presented the king and failed to procure rain, his subjects bind him with ropes and take him by force to the grave of his forefathers, that he may obtain from them the needed rain. The Banjais in West Africa ascribe to their king the power of causing rain or fine weather. So long as the weather is fine, they load him with presents of grain and cattle, but if long drought or rain threatens to spoil the crops, they insult and beat him till the weather changes. When the harvest fails, or the surf the coast is too heavy to allow of fishing. The people of Lango accuse the king of a bad heart and depose him. On the grain coast the high priest of fetish king, who bears the title of Bolio, is represented for the health of the community, the fertility of the earth, and the abundance of fish in the sea and rivers. And if the country suffers in any of these respects, the Bolio is deposed from his office. 
in usukuma a great district on the southern bank of the victoria nyanza the rain and locust question is part and parcel of the sultan's government he too must know how to make rain and drive away the locusts if he and his medicine men are unable to accomplish this his whole existence is at stake in times of distress on a certain occasion when the rain so greatly desired by the people did not come the sultan was simply driven out in a tatwa near nasa the people in fact hold that rulers must have power over nature and her phenomena again we are told of the natives of the nyanza region generally that they are persuaded that rain only falls as a result of magic and the important duty of causing it to descend devolves on the chief of the tribe if rain does not come at the proper time everybody complains more than one petty king has been banished to his country because of drought similarly among the antimores of madagascar the chiefs are held responsible for the operation of the laws of nature hence if the land is smitten with a blight or devastated by clouds of locusts if the cows yield little milk or fatal epidemics rage among the people the chief is not only deposed but stripped of his property and banished because they say that under a good chief such things ought not to happen so too in the antimorona we read that although the chiefs of this tribe are chosen by the people during their tenure of power they enjoy a respect which borders on an adoration but if a crop of rice fails or any other calamity happens they are immediately deposed sometimes even killed and yet their successor is always chosen from the family among the latukas of the upper nile when the crops are withering in the fields and all the efforts of the chief to bring down rain have proved fruitless the people commonly attack him by night rob him of all he possesses and drive him away but often they kill him in other parts of the world kings have been punished for failing to regulate the course of nature in many other parts of the world kings have been expected to regulate the course of nature for the good of their people and have been punished if they failed to do so it appears that the scythians when food was scarce used to put their kings in bonds in ancient egypt the sacred kings were blamed for the failure of the crops but the sacred beasts were also held responsible for the course of nature when pestilence and other calamities had fallen on the land in consequence of a long and severe drought the priests took the animals by night and threatened them if the evil did not abate they slew the beasts on the coral island of nu or savage island in the south pacific there formerly reigned a line of kings but as the kings were also high priests and were supposed to make the food grow the people became angry with them in times of scarcity and killed them till at last as one after another was killed no one would be king and the monarchy came to an end ancient chinese writers inform us that in korea the blame was laid on the king whenever too much or too little rain fell and the crops did not ripen some said that he must be deposed others that he must be slain the chinese emperor himself is deemed responsible if the drought is at all severe and many are the self-condemnatory edicts on the subject published in the pages of the venerable peking gazette in extreme cases the emperor clad in humble vestments sacrifices to heaven and implores its protection so too the kings of tonkin used to take blame to themselves when the country was visited by such calamities as scanty harvests death food destructive hurricanes and cholera on these occasions a monarch would sometimes publicly confess his guilt and impose on himself a penance as a means for appeasing the wrath of heaven in former days it sometimes happened that when the country suffered from drought and dearth the king of tonkin was obliged to change his name in the hope that this would turn the weather to rain but if the drought continued even after the change of name the people would sometimes resort to stronger measures and transfer the title of king from the legitimate monarch to his brother son or other near relation power of medicine men among the north american indians 
Among the American Indians, the furthest advance towards civilization was made under the monarchical and theocratic governments of Mexico and Peru. But we know too little of the early history of these countries to say whether the predecessors of the deified kings were medicine men or not. Perhaps a trace of such a succession may be detected in the oath which the Mexican kings took when they mounted the throne. They swore that they would make the sun to shine, clouds to give rain, rivers to flow, and the earth to bring forth fruits in abundance. Certainly in Aboriginal America, the sorcerer of the medicine man, surrounded by a halo of mystery and an atmosphere of awe, was a personage of great influence and importance, and he may well have developed into a chief or king in many tribes, though positive evidence of such a development appears to be lacking. Thus Catlin tells us that in North America, the medicine men are valued as dignitaries in the tribe, and the greatest respect is paid to them by the whole community, not only for their skill in their materia medica, but more especially for their tact in magic and mysteries, in which they all deal to a very great extent. In all tribes our doctors are conjurers, our magicians are soothsayers, and I like to have said high priests inasmuch as they superintend to conduct all their religious ceremonies. They looked upon by all as oracles of the nation. In all councils of war and peace they have a seat with the chiefs, are regularly consulted before any public step is taken, and the greatest deference and respect is paid to their opinions. Among the Lukuks of North West America each band is headed by a chief and one or more medicine men. The latter, however, do not possess any secular power as chiefs, but they acquire an authority of shamanism to which even the chiefs themselves are subject. The Luchoks are very superstitious, and place implicit faith in the pretended incantations of their medicine men, for whom they entertain great fear. The power of the medicine men is very great, and they use every means they can to increase it by working on the fears and credulity of the people. Their influence exceeds even that of the chiefs. The power of the latter consists in the quantity of beads they possess, their wealth and the means that affords them to work ill to those to whom they may be ill disposed, while the power of the medicine man consists in the harm they believe he is able to do by shamanism, should they happen to displease him in any way. It is when sickness prevails and the conjurer rules supreme. It is then that he fills his bead bags and increases his riches, Amongst the Tene Indians of the same region, the social standing of the medicine man is, on the whole, a desirable one, but it has also its drawbacks and its dark side. The medicine man is decidedly influential among his fellow savages. He is consulted and listened to on account of the superior knowledge imparted to him by the spirits. He is feared on account of his power to do evil. Fears to cause the death of a person, to ruin his undertakings, to render him unsuccessful in the hunt by driving away the game from his path, and cause the loss of his property of his strength, of his health, of his faculties, etc. The medicine man is rich because his services, when summoned, or even when accepted, though uncalled for, are generously remunerated. He is respected on account of his continual intercourse with the supernatural world. His words, when said in a peculiar low tone, with a momentary glow in the eyes which he seems able to control at will, or when uttered during his sleep, real or faint, are taken as oracles, as the very words of the spirit. In short, of these tribes who have no chiefs, no religion, no medical knowledge, he is the nearest approach to a chief, a priest, and a physician. Similarly in California, the shaman was, and still is, perhaps the most important individual among the Maidu. In the absence of any definite system of government, the word of a shaman is great weight. As a class, they regard with much awe, as a rule, are obeyed much more than at the chief. Power of medicine men among the North American Indians 
as leader of the local branch of a secret society the most noted maidu shaman of each district was supposed to make rain when it was needed to ensure a good crop of edible acorns and a plentiful supply of salmon and to drive away evil spirits disease and epidemics from the village further was his business to inflict disease and death on hostile villages which he did by burning certain roots and blowing the smoke towards the doomed village while he said over there over there not here to the other place do not come back this way we are good make those people sick kill them they are bad people among the yokuts another tribe of californian indians the rainmakers exercised great influence one of them by his insulating address eloquence and jugglery spread his fame at a distance of two hundred miles and accountly availed himself of two years of drought to levy contributions far and wide from the trembling indians who attributed to his magic the fall of the rain in the same tribe the wizards threw large profits from the rattlesnake dance which they danced every spring capering about rattlesnakes twined round their arms for after this exhibition many simpletons paid them for complete immunity from snake bites which the wizards were believed able to grant for a year power of medicine men among the south american indians in south america also the magicians or medicine men seem to have been on the high road to chieftainship or kingship one of the earliest settlers on the coast of brazil the frenchman Thevet, reports that the indians hold these pegas or medicine men in such honour and reverence that they adore or rather idolise them you may see the common folk go to meet them prostrate themselves and pray to them saying grant that i be not ill that i do not die that i nor my children or some such request and he answers you shall not die you shall not be ill and such like replies but sometimes if it happens that these beggars do not tell the truth and things turn out otherwise than they predicted the people make no scruple of killing them as unworthy of the title and dignity of beggars the indians of brazil say a modern writer who knew them well have no priests but only magicians who at the same time use medical help and exorcism in order to exert influence over the superstition and the dread of spirits felt by the rude multitude we may perfectly compare them with the shamans of the northeastern asiatic peoples but like the shamans they are not mere magicians fetish men soothsayers interpreters of dreams visionaries and casters out of devils their activity has also a political character in so far as they influence the decisions of the leaders and of the community in public business and exert a certain authority more than anybody else as judges sureties and witnesses in private affairs among the lengua indians of the grand chaco every clan has its cazique or chief but he possesses little authority in virtue of his office he has to make many presents so he seldom grows rich and is generally more shabbily clad than any of his subjects as a matter of fact the magician is the man who has most power in his hands and he is accustomed to receive presents instead of to give them it is the magician's duty to bring down misfortune and plagues on the enemies of his tribe and to guard his own people against hostile magic for these services he is well paid and by them he acquires a position of great influence and authority among the indians of guana also the magician or medicine man paye bayman is a personage of great importance by his magic art he alone it is believed can counteract the machinations of the great host of evil spirits to which these savages attribute all the ills of life it is almost impossible we are told to overestimate the dreadful sense of the constant and unavoidable danger in which the indian would live were it not for his trust in the protecting power of the magician every village has one such spiritual guardian who is physician priest and magician in one his influence is immense 
no indian dare refuse him anything he takes a fancy to from a trifle of food up to a man's wife hence these cunning fellows live in idleness on the fat of the land and acquire a large harem their houses are commonly full of women who serve them in the capacity of beasts of burden as well as of wives plodding wearily along under the weight of the baggage or long journeys while their lord and master fantastically tricked out in feathers and paint strolls ahead burdened only with his magic rattle and perhaps his bow and arrows power of medicine men among the pagan tribes of the malay peninsula among the wild pagan tribes of the malay peninsula the connection between the officers of magician and chief is very close indeed the two officers are often united in the same person among these savages as among the malays the accredited intermediary between gods and men is in all cases the medicine man or sorcerer in the Samang tribes the office of chief medicine man appears to be generally combined with that of chief but amongst the sakai and chakang these offices are sometimes separated and although the chief is almost invariably a medicine man of some repute he is not necessarily the chief medicine man any more than the chief medicine man is necessarily the minister of head of the tribe in both cases there is an unfailing supply of aspirants to the office though it may be taken for granted that all else being equal a successful medicine man would have much the best prospect of being elected chief that in the vast majority of cases his priestly duties form an important part of a chief's work the medicine man is as might be expected duly credited with supernatural powers his tasks are to preside as chief medium at all the ceremonies to instruct the youth of the tribe to ward off as well as to heal all forms of sickness and trouble to foretell the future as affecting the results of any given act to avert when necessary the wrath of heaven and even when re-embodied after death in the shape of a wild beast to extend a benign protection to his devoted descendants among the sakai and the jakan he is provided with a distinctive form of dress and body painting and carries an emblematic wand or staff by virtue of his office development of kings out of magicians among the malays throughout the malay region the rajah or king is commonly regarded with superstitious veneration as a possessor of supernatural powers and there are grounds for thinking that he too like apparently so many african chiefs has been developed out of a simple magician at the present day the malays firmly believe that the king possesses a personal influence over the works of nature such as the growth of the crops and the bearing of fruit trees the same prolific virtue is supposed to reside though in a lesser degree in his delegates and even in the persons of europeans who chance to have charge of districts thus in selangor one of the native states of the malay peninsula the successful failure of the rice crops is often attributed to a change of district officers the turateas of southern salives hold that the prosperity of the rice depends on the behaviour of their princes and that bad government by which they mean a government which does not conform to ancient custom will result in a failure of the crops belief of the dayaks and the power of the rajah to fertilize the rice the dayaks of sarawak believed that their famous english ruler rajah brooke was endowed with a certain magical virtue which if properly applied could render the rice crops abundant hence when he visited a tribe they used to bring him the seed which they intended to sow next year and he fertilized it by shaking over it the women's necklaces which had been previously dipped in a special mixture and when he entered a village the women would wash and bathe his feet first with water and then with the milk of a young coconut and lastly with water again and all this water which had touched his person they preserved for the purpose of distributing it on their farms believing that it ensured an abundant harvest tribes which were too far off for him to visit used to send him a small piece of white cloth and a little gold or silver 
and when these things have been impregnated by his generative virtue they bury them in their fields and confidently expected a heavy crop once a european remarked that the rice crops of the sanban tribe were thin the chief immediately replied that they could not be otherwise since rajah brooke had never visited them and he begged that mr brooke might be induced to visit his tribe and remove the sterility of their land links between malay rajahs and magicians among the malays the links which unite the king or rajah with the magician happen to be unusually plain and conspicuous thus the magician shares with the king the privilege of using cloth dyed yellow the royal colour he has considerable political influence and he can compel people to address him in ceremonial language of which indeed the phraseology is even more copious in its application to a magician than to a king moreover and this is a fact of great significance the malay magician owns certain insignia which are said to be exactly analogous to the regalia of the king they even bear the very same name kebisaran now the regalia of the malay king are not more jewelled baubles designed to impress the multitude with the pomp and splendour of royalty they are regarded as wonder-working talismans the possession of which carries with it the right to the throne if the king loses them he thereby forfeits the allegiance of his subjects it seems therefore to be a probable inference that in the malay region the regalia of the kings are only the conjuring apparatus of their predecessors the magicians and that in this part of the world accordingly the magician is a humble grub or chrysalis which in due time births and discloses that gorgeous butterfly the rajah or king in salives the regalia are talismans or fetishes the possession of which carries with it the right to the throne nowhere apparently in the indian archipelago is this view of the regalia as the true front of regal dignity carried to such lengths as in southern salibs here the royal authority is supposed to be in some mysterious fashion embodied in the regalia while the princes owe all the power they exercise and all the respect they enjoy to their possession of these precious objects in short the regalia reign and the princes are merely their representatives hence whoever happens to possess the regalia is regarded by the people as their lawful king for example if a deposed monarch contrives to keep the regalia his former subjects remain loyal to him in their hearts and look upon his successor as an usurper who is to be obeyed only in so far as he can exact obedience by force and on the other hand in an insurrection the first aim of the rebels is to seize the regalia for if they can only make themselves masters of them the authority of the sovereign is gone in short the regalia are here fetishes which confer a title to the throne and control the fate of the kingdom houses are built for them to dwell in as if they were living creatures furniture weapons and even lands are assigned to them like the ark of god they are carried with the army to battle and on various occasions the people appropriate them as if they were gods by prayer and sacrifice and by smearing them with blood some of them serve as instruments of divination or are brought forth in times of public disaster for the purpose of staying the evil whatever it may be for example when plague is rife among men or beasts or when there is a prospect of death the bourguignons bring out the regalia smear them with buffalo's blood and carry them about for the most part these fetishes are heirlooms of which their origin is forgotten some of them are said to have fallen from heaven popular tradition traces the foundation of the older states to the discovery or acquisition of one of these miraculous objects it may be a stone a piece of wood a fruit a weapon or what not of a peculiar shape or colour often the original regalia have disappeared in course of time but their place is taken by the various articles of property which were bestowed on them and to which the people have transferred their pious allegiance the oldest dynasties have the most regalia and the holiest regalia consists of relics of the bodies of former princes which are kept in golden cassettes wrapped in silk regalia as talismans in salibs 
at Palapo, the capital of Luwu, a kingdom on the coast of Celebes. Two toy cannons with barrels like thin gas pipes are regalia. Their possession is supposed to render the town impregnable. Other regalia of this kingdom are veiled from vulgar eyes in bark cloth. When a missionary requested to see them, the official replied that it was strictly forbidden to open the bundle. Were he to do so, the earth would yawn and swallow them up. In Boma, the principal part of the regalia or public talismans consists of a sacred brown house, which no man may ride. It is always stabled in the royal palace. When the animal passes, the government fought on high days and holidays is saluted with the fire of five guns. When it is led to the river to bathe, the royal spear is carried before it, and any man who does not give way to the beast or crosses the road in front of it has to pay a fine. But the horse is mortal, and when it goes the way of all horse flesh, another steed chosen from the same stud reigns in its place. Magical Virtue of Regalia in Egypt and Africa but if in the Malay region the regalia are essentially wonder-working talismans or fetishes which the kings appear to have derived from their predecessors, the magicians, we may conjecture that in other parts of the world the emblems of royalty may at some time have been viewed in a similar light and have had a similar origin. In ancient Egypt, the two royal crowns, the white and the red, were supposed to be endowed with magical virtues, indeed to be themselves divinities, embodiments of the sun god. One text declares, the white crown is the eye of Horus, the red crown is the eye of Horus. Another text speaks of a crown as a great magician, and applied to the image of a god, the crown was supposed to confirm the deity in the possession of his soul and of his form. Among the Yorubas of West Africa, at the present time, the king's crown is sacred and is supposed to be the shrine of a spirit which has to be propitiated. When the king, Oni, of Aif, visited Lagos some years ago, he had to sacrifice five sheep to his crown between a baden and Aif, a two days journey on foot. Among the Ashantis, the throne or chair of the king or chief is believed to be inhabited by a spirit to which it is consecrated, and to which human sacrifices were formally offered. At present the victims are sheep. It is the personification of power, hence a king is not a king if a chief is not a chief until he has been solemnly installed on the throne. Among the hosts, an Uwe tribe of the Togoland in German West Africa, the king's proper throne is small and the king does not sit on it. Usually it is bound round with magical cords and wrapped up in a sheep's skin. From time to time it is taken out of the wrappings, washed in a stream and smeared all over with the blood of a sheep which has been sacrificed for the purpose. The flesh of the sheep is boiled and a portion of it eaten by every man who has been present at the ceremony. Regalia venerated in Cambodia, Scythia and ancient Greece. In Cambodia, the regalia are regarded as a palladium on which the existence of the kingdom depends. They are committed to Brahmins for safekeeping. In antiquity, the Scythian kings treasured as sacred a plough, a yoke, a battle-axe, and a cup, all of gold, which were said to have fallen from heaven. They offered great sacrifice to these sacred things at an annual festival, and if the man in charge of them fell asleep under the open sky, it was believed that he would die within the year. The scepter of King Agamemnon, or what passed for such, was worshipped as a god at Cheronia. A man acted as priest of the scepter for a year at a time, and sacrifices were offered to it daily. The golden lamb of Mycenae, on the possession of which, according to legend, the two rivals Atreus and Theocistus based their claim to the throne, may have been a royal talisman of this sort. The belief that kings possess magical or supernatural powers to control the course of nature for the good of their subjects seems to have been shared by the ancestors of all the Aryan races from India to Ireland. 
the belief that kings possess magical or supernatural powers by virtue of which they can fertilize the earth and confer other benefits on their subjects was seen to have been shared by the ancestors of all the Aryan races from india to ireland and it has left clear traces of itself in our own country down to modern times thus the ancient hindu or book called the laws of manu describes as follows the effects of a good king's reign in that country where the king avoids taking the property of mortal sinners men are born in due time and are long-lived and the crops of the husbandmen spring up each as it was sown and the children die not and no misshapen offspring is born in homeric greece kings and chiefs were spoken of as sacred or divine their houses too were divine and their chariots sacred and it was thought that the reign of a good king caused the black earth to bring forth wheat and barley the trees to be loaded with fruit the flocks to multiply and the sea to yield fish a greek historian of a much later age tells us that in the reign of a very bad king of lydia the country suffered from drought for which he would seem to have held a king responsible there is a tradition that once when the land of the adonians in thrace bore no fruit the god dionysus intimated to the people that its fertility could be restored by putting their king lysurgus to death so they took him to mount pangium and there caused him to be torn to pieces by horses when the crops failed the burgundians used to blame their kings and oppose them swedish and danish kings in the time of the swedish king demald a mighty famine broke out which lasted several years and could be stayed by the blood neither of beasts nor of men therefore in a great popular assembly held up sala the chiefs decided that king demald himself was the cause of the scarcity and must be sacrificed for good seasons so they slew him and smeared with his blood the altars of the gods again we are told that the swedes always attributed good or bad crops to their kings as the cause now in the reign of king olaf there came dear times and famine and the people thought that the fault was the king's because he was sparing any sacrifices so mustering an army they marched against him surrounded his dwelling and burned him in it giving him to odin as a sacrifice for good crops in the middle ages when waldemar i king of denmark travelled in germany mothers brought their infants and husbandmen their seed for him to lay his hands on thinking that children would both thrive the better for the royal touch and for like reason farmers asked him to throw the seed for them it was the belief of the ancient irish that when their kings observed the customs of their ancestors the seasons were mild the crops plentiful the cattle fruitful the waters abounded with fish and the fruit trees had to be propped up on account of the weight of their produce a canon attributed to st patrick enumerates among the blessings that attended the reign of a just king fine weather calm seas crops abundant and trees laden with fruit on the other hand dearth dryness of cows blight of fruit and scarcity of corn were regarded as infallible proofs that the reigning king was bad for example in the reign of the usurper king carberry kincat evil was the state of ireland fruitless are corn for there used to be only one grain on the stalk fruitless are rivers milkless are cattle plentiless are fruit for there used to be but one acorn on the stalk Magical virtue attributed to the chiefs of the MacLeods. Superstitions of the same sort seem to have lingered in the highlands of Scotland down to the 18th century. When Dr. Johnson travelled in Skye, it was still held that the return of the laird to Dungveden, after any considerable absence, produced a plentiful capture of herring. The laird of Dunvegan is chief of the clan of MacLeods, and his family still owns a banner which is called MacLeods Fairy Banner, on account of the supernatural powers attributed to it. When it is unfurled, victory and war attends it, and it relieves its followers from imminent danger, but the virtues it can exert only thrice, 
and already it has been twice unfurled. When the potato crop failed, many of the common people desired that the magical banner should be displayed, apparently in the belief that the mere sight of it would produce a fine crop of potatoes. Every one with a child who sees it is taken with premature labour, and every cow casts her calf. A relic of this belief is the notion that English kings can heal scrofula by their touch. Perhaps the last relic of such superstitions which lingered about our English kings was the notion that they could heal scrofula by their touch. The disease was accordingly known as the king's evil. Queen Elizabeth often exercised his miraculous gift of healing. On Midsummer Day, 1633, Charles I cured a hundred patients at one sweep in the Chapel Royal at Holywood, but it was under his son, Charles II, that the practice seems to have attained its highest vogue. In this respect, the Merry Monarch did not let the grass grow under his feet. It was the 29th of May, 1660, when he was brought home in triumph from exile amid a shouting multitude and a forest of brandished swords over roads strewn with flowers and through streets hung with tapestry while the fountains ran wine and all the bells of london rang for joy and it was on the sixth of july that it began to touch for the king's evil charles second touching for the king's evil scrofula the ceremony is thus described by evelyn who may have witnessed it his majesty being first to touch for your evil according to custom thus his matey sitting under his state in the banqueting house the surgeons cause the sick to be brought or led up to the throne, where they, kneeling, ye king strokes their faces or cheeks with both hands at once, at which instant a chaplain in his formality says, he put his hands upon them and he healed them. This he said to every one in particular. When they had been all touched, they came up again in the same order, and the other chaplain kneeling and having angel gold, strung on white ribbon on his arm, delivers them one by one to his matey, who puts them about the necks of the touched as they pass, whilst the first chaplain repeats, That is ye true light, which came into your world. Then follows an epistle, as our first of gospel, from the liturgy, praise for the sick, with some alteration, lastly your blessing. And then the low chamberlain and the comptroller of the household bring a basin, o'er a towel, for his majesty to wash. Pepys witnessed the same ceremony at the same place on the 13th of April in the following year, and he's recorded his opinion that it was an ugly office and a symbol. It is said that in the course of his reign, Charles II touched near a hundred thousand persons for scrofula. The press to get near him was sometimes terrific. On one occasion, six or seven of those who came to be healed were trampled to death, while the hope of a miraculous cure attracted the pious and sanguine. The certainty of receiving angel gold attracted the needy and avacious, and it was not always easy for the royal surgeons to distinguish between the motives of the applicants. This solemn mummery cost the state little less than ten thousand pounds a year. The cool-headed William III contentiously refused to let himself to the hocus-pocus, and when his palace was besieged by the usual unsavoury crowd, he ordered them to be turned away with a doll. On the only occasion when he was importuned into laying his hand on a patient, he said to him, God give you better health and more sense. However, the practice was continued, as might have been expected by the dull bigot James II and his dull daughter Queen Anne. In his childhood, Dr. Johnson was touched for scrofula by the Queen, and he always retained a faint, but solemn recollection of her as of a lady in diamonds with a long black hood. To judge by the too faithful picture which his biographer has drawn of the doctor's appearance in later life, we may conclude that the touch of the Queen's hand was not a perfect remedy for the disorder. Perhaps the stream of divine grace which had flowed so copiously in the veins of Charles II 
had been dried up by the interposition of the sceptical William. Other kings and chiefs have claimed to heal diseases by a touch. The king of France also claimed to possess the same gift of healing by touch, which they are said to have derived from Clovis or from St. Louis, while our English claims inherited it from Edward the Confessor. We may suspect that these estimates of the antiquity of the gift were far too modest, and that the barbarous nay savage predecessors, both of the Saxon and of the Merovingian kings, had with the same justice claimed the same powers many ages before. Down to the 19th century, the West African tribe of the Wallows in Senegal ascribed to their royal family a like power of healing by touch. Mothers have been seen to bring their sick children to the queen, who touched them solemnly with her foot on the back, the stomach, the head and the legs, at which the women departed in peace, convinced that their children had been made whole. Similarly, the savage chiefs of Tonga are believed to heal scrofula and cases of indurated liver by the touch of their feet, and their cure was strictly homeopathic for disease as well as the cure was thought to be caused by contact with a royal person or with anything that belonged to it the fact royal personages in the pacific and elsewhere have been supposed to live in a sort of atmosphere highly charged with what we may call spiritual electricity which if it blasts all who intrude into its charmed circle has happily also the gift of making them whole again by a touch we may conjecture that similar views prevailed in ancient times as to the predecessors of our english monarchs and that accordingly scrofula received its name of the king's evil from the belief that it was caused as well as cured by contact with the king in loango pulsius called the king's disease because the negroes imagined it to be heaven's punishment for treason mediated against the king on the whole kings seem to have been often evolved out of magicians but in course of time to have exchanged magical for religious functions in other words to have become priests instead of sorcerers on the whole then we seem to be justified in inferring that in many parts of the world the king is the lineal successor of the old magician or medicine man when once a special class of sorcerers has been segregated from the community and entrusted by it with the discharge of duties on which the public safety and welfare are believed to depend these men gradually rise to wealth and power till their leaders blossom out into sacred kings but the great social revolution which thus begins with democracy and ends in despotism, is attended by an intellectual revolution which affects both the conception and the functions of royalty. For as time goes on, the fallacy of magic becomes more and more apparent to the acuter minds, and is slowly displaced by religion. In other words, the magician gives way to the priest, who, renouncing the attempt to control directly the processes of nature for the good of man, seeks to attain the same end indirectly by appealing to the gods and to do for him what he no longer fancies he can do for himself hence the king starting as a magician tends greatly to exchange the practice of magic for the priestly functions of prayer and sacrifice and while the distinction between the human and the divine is still imperfectly drawn it is often imagined that men may themselves attain to godhead not merely after their death but in their lifetime through the temporary or permanent possession of their whole nature by a great and powerful spirit no class of the community has benefited so much as kings by this belief in the possible incarnation of a god in human form the doctrine of that incarnation and with it the theory of the divinity of kings in the strict sense of the world will form the subject of the following chapter end of section 14 what's so special about hero bread's soft fluffy and delicious breads buns and tortillas these ultra low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar fewer calories and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health shop now at hero.co